This episode of the MedTalk Podcast is brought to you by MedTech Innovation Expo, the leading event for the UK and Ireland's medical device industry. Save the dates of 8th to the 9th of June 2022, where you can find out more about medical device supply chain intelligence. For more information, visit medtechexpo.com. Hello and welcome to the MedTalk podcast, discussing the latest news and issues in life sciences. I'm Ian Bolland, editor of MedTech Innovation News, and in a slightly different approach to the podcast this time, I'm a mere observer, as we hear from Alex Menes from Motherland, a company that has been guided by the National Institute of Health Research. Alex is joined by Ian Newington, head of special projects at the NIHR, to explain how the organisation works with startups to bring their products to market, the factors they need to consider, and advice for startups who would like to see their innovations on the NHS front line. Greetings, everyone. My name is Alex Menes, and I'm playing the role of host today on this podcast, and I'm joined by Ian Newington. So, Ian, do you want to give us a quick background, then I'll introduce myself, and then I've got some some questions for you. So sure, that's great. Yeah, so uh, welcome. Thanks to everyone to listening. Um, my name's Ian Newington. I'm um, Head of Special Projects at... Uh, um, LGC's grant management group in, in particular, um, we manage um, healthcare funding for NIHR and uh, NHS England on a number of areas, particularly in the medtech space, which is hence the, this conversation. My my background is actually as a chemist, so I'm not in the, an engineer at all in that sense. Um, many years, but in R&D, um, I have uh, done lots of patenting and all that kind of stuff, so I know the processes around for, around IP quite well. Um, and I'm I guess I've been in this role for something like uh six and a half years um and uh in in the medtech space with particularly with the nihr's i for i program and now sbri healthcare uh, and the ai award uh which yeah, the team that i work in uh covers um uh, so i've learned quite a lot about uh medtech and all the issues and associated things which i think is what alex is going to ask me about as we go through Indeed, indeed I am. So I think just a quick bit of background on me. So I did a PhD in medical imaging at University College Hospital. During that PhD, I thought it'd be a great idea to start a company. Um, we'll see if that's a good idea or not. But since then, I've received uh, not one, but two, you know, very, you know, very impactful grants from the NIHR, the Product Development Award, and then more recently, the Real World Evidence Award. And the NIHR has spent the best part of the last decade questioning me on every single facet of my company, why it will be successful, why it won't be, and so on and so forth. And Ian has kind of been a big part of that. So, Ian, you're going to get some payback today, some, some questioning around all those, those difficulties in the application forms that you put me through. But I think the goal here is to kind of really have a bit of an exploration around, you know, especially medtech and how the NIHR sees it. And I think Ian's going to give, shed, some, shed some light on this. So, Ian, are you ready for your first First question today. Uh, well, far away. Let's see how we go. <laughs> Great. So medtech is kind of hard. And I kind of joke, if you're having fun, you're doing it wrong. You know, it's it's a bit of a slog. But I think, um, you know, it's quite difficult to pin down exactly what, what medtech is. Um, and instead of me trying to do it, I was going to say, how does the NHR define medtech? Because there's going to be a lot of people applying for different grants that come through you. And how do you kind of really... Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So, so, and it is difficult, and it's a, it is a bit of a broad terminology. And 
with the increase in digital technologies coming into healthcare again, uh, some of which are treated as medical devices and some of which aren't, is is where you draw those kind of lines and whether you call it health technology, health tech, which tends to be all digital, or whether you call it med tech, which people think of as traditional things like devices. Um, what we typically mean by that in NIHRR is devices, medical devices, diagnostics, uh, so in vitro diagnostics largely and imaging diagnostics and so on, um, and uh, digital technologies. Uh, in that in that particular case, so for instance, the I4I uh, scheme, uh, for digital, we're talking about the nice tier C or in old money tier three uh, uh, devices in terms of their evidence framework. So these are patient facing things that are going to affect potentially affect treatment and certainly in tier at the top end of that, uh, that many of those are going to be medical devices in their own right, a software medical device. So, so it covers quite a broad range, uh, and it would include uh, things from, um, I guess, a, a thermometer is a medical device if you're using it in a hospital to measure someone's temperature, but also at the set, at the same time, um, it, it could be some sort of active implantable device. So we've had working around TAVRs and stuff has been funded through the I4I program. So quite sophisticated. Some of our technologies that we're funding in this space are would be sort of medical machine learning for radiology, those kind of things, which are the sort of thing that you, you're probably quite familiar with, Alex. So it, it, it covers a very broad range of things. Um, it, effectively, it's stuff that isn't um, drugs and pharm pharmaceutical type things. It, largely, we probably don't consider... Um, sort of stem cells and gene therapy either although some of the things that you have to do around uh, gene therapy there are devices and bits and pieces of equipment and stuff which would potentially come under the medical come under sort of med tech so it, it, there's some it's there's some gray areas in the middle uh, where it's sometimes we have to make an assessment hope that's okay, helpful sure. so, so to paraphrase you're not funding big pharmaceutical developments of new drugs you're not Absolutely, funding Okay. Um, yeah, that's, that's that's a whole another can of worms. You're not funding electronic patient records and IT systems like spreadsheets in healthcare, um, but you are going somewhere in between. You know, broadly covered by the the MDR medical device regulations, and that will include everything from a hip implant implant or a pacemaker that might be therapeutic, or something that might be diagnostic, like a radiology imaging analysis software, a thermometer, or you know, a new type of lateral flow test. Who knows? absolutely absolutely yeah um, uh, and, and indeed we fund it across the range as well so it's from that, that some of those very early concepts which i think you you might want to ask me about as well about how you know what we cover and how how we how we do that don't, we're, we're going to get to that don't worry i've got some <laughs> questions on that a bit um no so i think you must see thousands of applications a year across you know the various different programs and um I think you know, that nicely kind of pins down exactly what we're talking about in, in the rest of this talk. So I think that's, that's quite important. Um, so, you know, as I've said, medtech is, is quite tough. Um, and I think one of the things that I discovered was, you know, my first round of applications, um, I was all very happy and I proudly said we'd go off and we'd get a CE mark. And, you know, that was somehow like the big win. Um, and I've kind of, I've gotten, you know, slightly older, more jaded and grown some great hairs. And, um, I've come to realize that the CE mark, it's not like a, a nice endorsement that what you do works and changes healthcare and everyone should buy it. It just, it sort of means that it's just safe and that's including, you know, the 2A designations and so on and so forth. Um, you know, I guess 
when you're starting out as a small company, when you're seeing a lot of these, you know, especially academics coming out of universities or, you know, early entrepreneurs that are desperately putting something through, how would you talk around the CE marketing process? Do you, do you agree with what I've just said or how would you say that people talk about CE marketing? Oh, no. Absolutely. So, CE, a CE mark is just is is a, obviously it's an, it's a, a requirement. So it's a, it's one of those things which is necessary but not sufficient. Um, it, you'd be very very lucky to be able to take yours, particularly if we're, when we're talking here about uh, innovative technologies. These are things that are new that the system hasn't seen. So it's not just a me too type thing. Uh, you're going to be incredibly lucky, and I and I can't even think of an example at the moment. If you were able to take one of those with a CE mark and go and talk to your your local NHS trust and get them to buy it because they're going to want a lot more than that. So they're going to need a lot more evidence around this thing, which they've never seen before, how well it works. Does it work? Make sure, I mean, in theory, the CE mark will tell you that it's safe, but they're going to, it's definitely whether it's efficacious and, and, and of course, whether it's cost effective, uh, is it actually going to cost the, it's not, it's, it may do fantastic things for patients, but if it's going to cost a lot more than the current treatment, then probably it isn't going to make it. So there's lots of other questions. And in terms of what what we will be doing in NIHR, in, so that, as you say, those all those applications, or and certainly it, it, more to the point when people uh, talk to us, hopefully, before they make an application, and I, and I don't know, I might throw back that one to you, whether you actually talked to us before you actually applied for your grant. But one of the things we try to do is encourage people and we go out and we talk to people, at least we we did in in previous times um and, and hopefully we'll get back to doing a bit more of that and meeting more people is actually making the opportunity to to talk to people about what this involves and we've got some we're funding some groups of people and individuals and organize organizations as part of nihr who do a lot of this which is to help people understand what the journey looks like um and then when you're applying um the expectation and if you look at uh well, I know people don't like guidance because it's you know lots of lots of words and long documents. But actually, if you're applying for a grant, you need to read the guidance because it's like it's like writing your name at the top of the exam paper. If you don't and, and reading the question, if you don't answer the question that's asked you, you're not going to get very far. And we will ask you those kind of things. We'll ask you about uh, obviously what your regulatory plans are, but we'll also ask you about how how you how this is going to get to a patient's what's the your adoption strategy how are you going to scale this and commercialize it what's your business uh, kind of strategy your commercial strategy around this because it's very clear that we're not going to provide benefit to patients on a sustainable basis which is what we're really looking for with some of this stuff unless you've got you know where you're going uh, or at least you have some sense of the direction you know that, that you've got to get go through that journey and then you can start thinking about uh what it is i need to do to to fill that out and to build a plan around that and if i don't if you don't have all the answers and we realistically especially at the beginning when in in some of those earlier stages of i for i product development you won't have all those answers and those things are going to change as you discover more but you can build that into as a work package as part of the as part of the grant and so we'll expect to see that um and that might you know one of the outputs of your of your funding as well as hopefully a, 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 a more advanced prototype uh, of your device or, you know, a product that's actually usable and can be tested in a clinical trial uh, would actually be, um, first of all, something around your regulatory uh, 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 package, your technical file, etc. cetera. Uh, hopefully you'll get most of that information through the, through one of our awards and be, you probably not at this point be able to submit it just because of 
things which we might come on to in terms of the mess that's going on at the moment in regulation or the, the confusion that there is. But I, but but we, you may well have hopefully captured all the information you need and you've built that technical file and you're ready to submit or pretty close to being ready to submit that. Um, but also you've got a some bet, much better sense of where you, how you're going to engage with the NHS and what, what sort of product you've got uh, and how the NHS might, therefore, what you need to do to get it there and who you need to talk to. Um, and, uh, and we can come back to some reorganizations of NHS because that's also adding a little bit more confusion to the, to the picture. Uh, and also what's your business strategy? Cause we're going to be interested in that because the, rea- the reality, so if the NHR has a strat line and it says it's, um, research, basically it's, it's, uh, the NHR is, is funding or supporting research, um, in healthcare for the benefit of patients, but it's, it's the health and wealth of the nation and it's definitely health first. But it's um, in order to provide sustainable benefits to patients, i.e. the health improvement, you need to have some sort of sense of commercial. You need to, ha- you need to have a, uh, some way of making that sustainable. Even if it's a, a not-for-profit option, uh, you, still, you still have to generate some money to maintain that service and to provide it over the long term. So, so that's an important part of what we're going to be looking for when you're applying to us. So I think, yeah, so just to kind of like dig into a little bit uh, more there, one of the the things that I, when I was applying for these grants, I just militantly followed the instructions, which is obviously step one. But I kind of followed it into, or fell into the standard trap of being like, well, we're going to get C marked, and then we're going to apply to NICE, and then our health economics is going to be amazing. And obviously none of that happens. And, you know, looking back now, what what I felt and what I wanted to write was the only people that can sell a new medical device or a new piece of technology is one clinician to another clinician, one nurse practitioner to probably her fellow, you know, his or her fellow nurse practitioners, and it's that kind of internal referral, and that doesn't need a C mark. There's cert, you know, you know, they don't. I found that no one really cares about the C marking bit. They're like, who else is using it? Do I trust it? And if there is equipoise, and I don't know, let me get hands on quickly and just get a feel for it. And I think that is. You know, it takes real gumption to put that in an application. But if you were to read that in the plan, how would you want that? Let's get it into the hands of people quickly to see what the problems are. How would how would you recommend someone phrase that in an application? Yeah, that's a good. That's a very good question. Because uh, absolutely, what we're what we're hoping to to find is that that you've engaged with. Uh, probably, it's the that you know you, you're going to have some sort of clinical. You're going to have somebody, a clinician, who is kind of championing you, who really likes what you've got. Uh, and it, uh, and, understa- and understands the need for it at least, uh, and is keen to help you to make sure it, it 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 works and it develops. And as you say, it's that kind of both both in there amongst other clinicians, but also uh, thinking about a little bit later on is about their procurement people, perhaps in their trust or wherever that organisation is that they're gonna they're gonna help you with. Um, so in terms of an application, uh, yeah, well, I guess we'd like to see that you've got that relationship established that you've got probably that person um or at least one of those people at, at least is going to be on your as, as a, on your application as a co-applicant um to, to to be part of that and i and i guess um th- this touches on the is this a a relationship of convenience um because often you can tell that uh literally mm. you've only just started talking to them or is this something where you've actually right almost right from the start uh it might have even been that you've you know in through come out about through talking with the clinician 
that there's a problem that you recognize there's a gap here that needs to be filled there's an issue and an opportunity and and that's and that's where the the whole concept and idea has come from so and then you've got a more established relationship and i think often that's uh, you can sit you can tell that quite often it's not always so easy to tell that on paper but but actually even in an application you can often see that uh, that relationship and, and it can be expressed in a way that is clear that you know we've been working together for some time um, and especially if you may have had one grant already uh, and we we will know that you've been working with this team at least um, it, it's worth also saying perhaps that um, and this is another reason why we want to encourage people to talk to us early is that the NIHR, we, we, you know, this is a massive organization. Uh, it's, we, we spend about 1.2 billion uh, pounds of taxpayers money uh, on various forms of healthcare research. I mean, obviously about, and about 25% of that goes into research programs, which are the things you apply for. Uh, and I for I is a relatively small part of that, but, but it's, it's not insignificant. Um, so, but what that means is we're funding lots of people, and 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 pretty much all of those are uh, clinical, and, and most of them are doing clinical work, even if they are um, academic, clinical academics. Many of them are still practicing clinicians at the front line, uh, and if you need people to help you and to get into those situations, you need people to, who can advise you, who can be those people who are going to talk to other clinicians, who can talk to you about the realities of how this might work in in on the ground in a in a real clinic and help you with those kind of usability things uh you know the human factors kind of stuff which is actually increasingly is is important uh or essential for your regulatory process as well um we can help you and connect you with some of those people so that's a that's one of the other things that the nihr does through either mm -hmm. directly or and, uh, through parts of its uh, infrastructure and its organizations so, I mean, I guess one of the, the kind of these slight elephants in this little room, as I see it, is, um, you know, I'm, I've done this incorrectly in the past, but you'll often get an application that's got someone like me that's ready to drop everything and pursue the cause. But there'll be a clinical partner or two, like maybe in my case, it's a radiologist and a gastroenterologist, you know, these wonderful people. And they'll, they'll show up on these applications with like 2.5% FDE committed time. And what I've come to realize is you need two days a week from these people, preferably full time. But, you know, this can't happen because they're already overworked. They're locked into clinical practice. There isn't even the mechanism to buy out their time effectively. So, you know, when the grant gets funded, it's very easy to have these people. You know, I'm lucky because I've got, a you know, one of these luminary professors of radiology that has like big chunks of time dedicated to research. But, you know, a lot of the future of the NHS are these like young consultants and registrar level doctors or the, the equivalents in other areas. Again, I can't speak for the entire clinical stack. I'm very, very narrow, and that's my failure. But in my case, it's the doctors. They just don't have the time, the flexibility, and the training, or the kind of support to really break out and do justice to the research that you're funding. And, you know, have you got any thoughts about how the NHR can basically help with this, or anyone can help with this? But I don't think it's it's yours to fix. But it's it's a big problem, I see. Well, I would agree with that, and I think, um, and it's interesting because we have this. Uh, so one of the things we do. Uh, is look at people's commitments uh, uh, to the award. So as when we're looking at the team, when we're look, when we're looking at the um, uh, the CVs and, and who's on the who's on there and how much time they're committing and what it is they're trying to do. So are they committing enough time to do what they're supposed to be doing and the con contribution they're going to make? Um, I, I think and absolutely you're right because if you've got um, you know a consultant who's who's spending most of his time, he may only have 
depending on what his his uh, employment contract says, he may have a a percentage of his time to al- allowed to do research. Uh, now, I think that that is something which. Uh, we may see a bit more change in. I don't know for sure, and I can't say what this is going to look like. But there's a uh, one of the things that's happened uh, as part of the kind of reset post-COVID is the recognition of the value of research uh, in the service in the NHS, and that's being built back in as part of the the, the reset process. Um, and so there'll be a much more a much more clear expectation of that, and a much more their processes will be make it easier to do that. But I. Still, it's going to depend on how much time a clinician actually has available and perhaps on what's in their contract. And then they may already be working on a couple of other projects. So the amount of time they can actually spend on yours is, is, is you say, could be quite small. I think in, the, in those cases, and it's a bit like the academic situation, often, you know, the Professor X, uh, who who's kind of the, the, the key person, it's actually not him that's doing most of the work. He's just he's just mentoring uh, or supervising one of his either his postdocs or, or PhD students that's actually going to do most of the work, and I think that's often what we'll see on a on a grant application is that the the the, the lead per clinician may not be the person that ends up doing most of the work, but what they'll do they'll be doing is strongly guiding the work that's being done by uh, somebody down at at a, at a more technical or or, or junior grade uh, or a postdoc type researcher, and and again, um, yeah. Ha- it is a problem, I think, uh, and it and it's not just about time. Um, I think it's also about well, it's about time, but in a different way. It's about the, the urgency, sense of urgency, because small com- as a small company, you, you're burning money uh, and you need to deliver something, and you're very keen to do that and to develop it, and you've got a time frame. Uh, people who are who for whom this is not their fault, their main job um, have a have a different sense of that urgency and and sometimes those things don't add up quite so well and it's a, that's a, that's a challenge uh and and i think um perhaps this comes on to the whole issue around teams which i think you wanted to ask me some questions about anyway and what we're looking for in a team but i think you're you're absolutely right and i don't think we have a we don't have a solution uh for that you know sometimes we see on an application as an example um uh i better be careful how i say this but um i i'm going to say um Professor Dame X uh, is on on an application at sort of you know 0.5 percent or whatever one percent or and and you think well what are they actually doing what why are they there and quite often there's no indication of what they're doing and actually what you know is that well, they're there because that's the name that you want on the form it's not because it's not because they're doing it they're adding anything useful now that's not to say that they might not be but you need to tell us what they're doing if they're down there as one percent there's something particular that they're going to do that's going to help you. It might just be advocacy for your project or have access to certain people, but that's and that's fine. But you need to tell us that. But what we're looking for are people that are going to. Uh, so we have we do have this debate in the team, and and I have to say the panels have this same question. It comes up: is five percent or is ten percent uh, the right amount um, of of time, uh, and and what's realistic and what? It, so I think we're trying to match that with what they're actually contributing. Sure. Um, and I think um, just for anyone that's putting in applications, if you get to an interview stage, then, you know, I think things are looking good. But where there's uncertainty, I think if you say this is literally what this person can be doing, why it's essential. And, you know, for a lot of driving these products, you, you know, if you're the applicant behind this, you are the example waving the flag and you've got to be out there and be part salesperson. 
and inspire your colleagues, go to the local conferences and show people how this works. And you just can't do that if you're juggling 10 different jobs together. And I think the NHR is, to put words in your mouth, you got pretty wise to that. Um, and I think it's, you know, we definitely need more kind of uh, clinical researchers in the stack. But I think in the application, it'd be good to kind of see this kind of come through because it is. Yeah, and, and I think absolutely. And, and I think it's fair to say, so, so I, I will say this uh, around, you know, sometimes people think you need to have this kind of uh, really high powered people on your on your application. And it's not necessary. I think what you need to do is to have the right people that have got the right skill to do what you're asking them to do. And and it may well be that, in fact, what you've got is a, a um, I mean, junior doctors are notoriously bad for having not having much time. But you may have someone who is who isn't at that high, higher level with with years and years and years of experience. But actually, they've got all the right skills uh, and perhaps they're being mentored by one of those people because they're all they're working with them but actually they're and they're the people that you know you have a much more of a sense they're going to be the people who are going to deliver something and 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 that's the that's what we'd be looking for we're looking for the people to be on the application either as co-applicants or potentially you're if you haven't if you're missing some skill sets you're missing certain things uh like uh how to do some design work or something like that for man- taking your prototype and designing it for manufacture so it can be reproduced multiple times though sometimes that isn't available in your uh, in your company probably quite likely it's not you need to go and find someone else so subcontract that uh you don't have a regulatory expertise go and find a consultant who can help you those things can be uh, and those things are covered by our um the funding that we offer so you can build that into the cost of the of the of the project uh, that's um, some some good advice. I think both of us can talk ad nauseum on this. So I might just pivot us on off onto a slightly separate topic that's it's nevertheless uh, related. Um, health economics. So I've got a bit of a glib statement, and that is nobody bought a Da Vinci robot because the health economics added up. You know, they, it was really cool. You know, you look at this amazing piece of kit, and you're like, I want that. And you know, if you're one of these like. You know, alpha surgeon personalities that can raise the cash, then you're going to get it too. And I think at the leading edge of the adoption curve, it's just people that want cool stuff that drives it. Then it percolates down. Then there's apparently some chasm. And then you get the early majority, the late majority, and it goes from there. Um, there's been such a big push in recent years to health economics. I'm seeing it leaved into every application that I've reviewed, and it's kind of held as this the most important part. And I, I th- I don't think personally we're getting complete value from the health economic process at the moment. I think it's being used a bit heavy-handedly. Have you got any advice to talk around how health economics can fit into a project? What stage it could be deployed? Just just give me some some high-level Ian. Yeah, no, I, okay, absolutely. I, 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 no, I agree. So I think one of the things, and, and it's something to be honest that uh, as soon as I started, say six or so, five six years ago, six five six years ago, I was out on the road starting talking to lots of people, giving talks about the program and all the rest of it. One of the things we have on our slides that we used uh, probably still on there, it, it we used to have it in bold red that said health economics as one of the things that you needed to think about and, and include. But and then of course the question is, oh, so what do you mean by health economics? Because then we've got people at one end who are looking at the whole sort of cost then of cost effectiveness, cost benefit, the nice kind of HTA type thing, and you and there's no way you're going to be able to do that. At, at that early stage uh and and absolutely absolutely it's not appropriate so i think it's a it's having things at an appropriate level but i think i so i think the advice here that we that i would typically be giving is is to is to think about it's going to be important so you're going to have to think about that at some point because the reality is um 
uh, it, it's pretty rare, certainly in terms of in the med tech space, that any bits of med tech. I, I, I understand your comment about Da Vinci robots, and it's it was a bit like that with um, uh, 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 NMR. Um, um, you know some of the sort of fancy new NMR machines, uh, and and sort of um, pet pet MR was a big thing a little while ago. Everyone wanted one of these things, uh, and they're vast, vastly expensive, but they're only going to be useful for research at that point. But but lots of people wanted them because they were cool new technology. Want to see what you can do with them? There's no way they were there was any kind of cost effectiveness built into that at all. It was just a cool bit of technology that we thought we should be able to do something useful with. Uh, and I understand that issue, but I think for most people developing medtech, they still probably they're not that may not happen, um, and it certainly may not go very far much further unless you start thinking about so what's the part what's the clinical pathway this fits into, and I think understanding what that pathway looks like, um, and and where the and it's not just about using my widget uh, in that thing it's 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 the whole part so what does it do when you put that into the pathway does it change it does it uh what, what are the consequences further downstream is is it going to identify more or less patients is it you know all of those things you need to start to think about now realistically you're not going to have you're until you've done quite a lot more uh, and a, a, some serious sort of clinical study uh, with lots of patients to get the numbers and understand what that looks like. You're not going to be able to say, well, this is what our cost effectiveness looks like. You're not going to have the numbers and the data to do that. But what it can help you with is understanding at some point, if my, if I can't realistically make my widget for uh, a, a price that's actually going to get me below or, you know, it looks like it, at this stage, even it's going to be on that right trajectory. I might have to seriously think, is this actually ever going to get there? And I think so. Or, or you need to think about how how you could get it at a at a cost that's going to do that. So I think it's 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 about appropriateness, but it's about thinking about that whole pathway. And again, this comes back to that same point you said about um, having clinicians on the ground who who can really help you understand how this fits into the pathway, how they're dealing with patients, because that's all really really absolutely critical information to thinking about what the how how this impacts the costs that the NHS are going to be thinking about because when they come to buy your piece of kit uh you particularly when we now we're I'm, we're talking about novel innovative bits of medtech rather than just another version of something that somebody's already got the issue isn't just about what how much it costs it's about what it does to the pathway and how much how much mm -hmm. that changes the overall cost and and I think there are ways of looking at that at a fairly crude level. I mean, it's a bit like, you know, putting your finger in the air and trying to sense what's going on. But if you can't do that, and if you're still, if, you, if you're nowhere near in, the, in, a, in a reasonable space with that, then you might have to think about a different way of solving that problem that's actually a little bit more, um, you know, where there is an opportunity to, to get the costs right. Sure. So I think maybe just to kind of quickly give a bit of an example with that. So with my own... Um, technology company, we look at inflammatory bowel disease where the patient gets diagnosed and that's one thing, but then they go on these very expensive drugs with a high failure rate. And the, the big problem is when, you know, we're spending a lot of money and if that drug's failing, which is 50% likely to be doing, the patient's getting worse, the NHS is spending more, the patient's, you know, in a, in a worse place and the, the doctor's not happy with how they're performing. So it's, it's bad for everyone. But, you know, the if you look at this through the lens of the health economics, you know, our technology, if it performs really, really well, we're going to spend more on that patient sooner. 
you know, so you're going to switch them to a more expensive drug and then a more expensive one. And you know, you can make the argument that the total time to remission, like you can contract contract five years down to two years, but spend you know quite a lot of money in that time. That health economic argument is real ugly, and you know, there's probably some big brains at the CECGs that could interpret that. And nice might look at it, but they're going to want to see a decade's worth of evidence of that actually working. So it's a horrible target to go after. But what we did look at was, for example. Um, potentially cost savings within the MRI scan itself. Can we drop sequences to take a 45-minute scan down to 30 minutes and involve cannulations? You don't need to have a radiographer that has to cannulate. And, you know, it's far less, you know, sexy, glamorous, but, you know, it's a much smaller part of the, the health economic question. And, and I, I kind of guess, um, Ian, what you're saying is it's rare that there's just one single grand slam victory from health economics, and there's often lots of little parts of that pie, and sometimes it's better to start with small bits. Um, but it's also to get the, you know, the cart or the horse the right way around, um, you know, sort of paraphrasing. If you kick the whole process off with health economics to say what the care pathway looks like and what all the things cost, then you bring in your clinician to say what is doable and what isn't. And then you build the studies and everything around the bits that are doable. And then you get your health economics to wrap the whole thing up and stick it in a HTA type pack and then hopefully that'll get you somewhere. Do you think that's the way to look at it, rather than just appending an economist to the application at a late stage and hoping for the best? Oh, no, ab absolutely. And I think, and I think uh, ab that's, uh, that's, that's absolutely right. I mean, I think what, what we're... And I guess, so in terms of the application process, so for, I'm talking, I'm talking mostly about here about I4I and the way that we would look at this. We're going to, we're going to look at it in the context of, you know, this is the appropriateness and the fact that you understand how this is going to fit and, and that you've got an understanding of the pathway. And it's, it may be worth mentioning now. So one of the, one of the organizations that the um, uh, uh, NIHR funds uh, are a, a group of organizations, set of organizations called mix so they're medtech and in vitro diagnostic cooperatives there are 11 of them around the country and, and they they are obviously focused on medtech hence the name um uh, there are several of them are specifically focused on in vitro diagnostics and that's a particular area where where the whole health economic argument started much much earlier in terms of understanding the diagnose what it was because people kept com diagnostic companies or innovators developing new diagnostics kept coming and asking the question well you know my diagnostic is 25 percent cheaper or it's only or only cost twenty five percent of the cost of the pre the existing test, but no one seems to want to buy it. And then and this and, and I'm doing it in primary care and not in secondary care, so we don't have you know we're getting, and and then there's all sorts of questions then because suddenly you ask questions. So you're saying, uh, and I had this conversation with several people, and I said, well, so you're going to send this to a GP, so you you want you want uh, you want the GP to um, buy your piece of kit. Uh, spend cost somebody's time to run the test in his clinic in his surgery uh and at the same time uh so you're going to get a result very quickly and it's so on but at the same time normally he sends that sample off and he's getting reimbursed for running that test etc and, and so you're asking him not to have that money and to spend this money so from his perspective how does that work now, I think that's an interesting argument because often people didn't realise that they were trying to substitute somebody's money and asking them to spend money instead. So I think that's an interesting... Uh, there's lots of things like that. There are all sorts of perverse incentives built into the system at different stages, which which getting a, getting to understand how that works can be quite tricky uh, and you keep, and keep coming across different ones. And I think that's... So I think, again, it comes back to this, make sure you've got the right people 
well, you're talking to the right people and you're engaged with people on the ground who kind of understand this stuff because uh, they live it every day and they sort of know what's going on. So if you're working with a GP and you want them to put a test in, you need to go and talk to them about how it works and what, what it is they're doing because they're going to tell you that kind of stuff. So I think, again, it, so it comes back to that, the right level of health economics at the right stage. But I think understanding the pathway that you're working with uh, is a pretty crucial thing to um, from the point of view of the application, because that, that that's something that um, the, the panel will look at. Quite, and, and I've heard this come up at panel meetings where people say, well, this is completely this is never going to work because they have no idea of the reality of how this how this stuff works in practice and i think that's that's you don't want to be in that position when you spend a lot of time and effort putting an application together make sure you you understand what it is you're where it is you're trying to put this thing in and how how the system actually works sure no i think i'm kind of stunned looking back that i got funded in the first place but here we are so it's all good um but you know well taken um so I think we've, we've kind of progressed through some elements here of like broadly what people should be thinking about. And this is not just an IHR. This is just if you want to walk the path of pain uh, in med tech, you know, you've got to be thinking about all this stuff constantly. But it's, it's, it's the way to live your life. And even if you're just a researcher um, in this space, deeply thinking about the research question, if you're applying, for example, MRC grants, how is this, where, where is this going to go? What's it going to affect? What's the path, care pathway look like? It's going to get you higher impact publications and your academic career and grants, you know, across the entire stack are, you know, going to be improved. So I think it's it's broadly applicable and not just um, to NHR I for I applicants. But looking slightly, you know, towards the later stages here. So I think a lot of people, you know, they start off in academia, they find some cool things, a piece of tech, they hopefully win, you know, a, you know, an award to help with that kind of, you know, quasi commercialization step. But it's, it's kind of a marathon, not a sprint, and more money is often needed. And I think there's often the, the opportunity here, people tend to bring in external investment. Um, there is something deeply unsettling about the financial markets in the world today. You know, it's, it's a bit scary, but, you know, there's no shortage of venture capital funding. Um, you know, we're not really worried about private equity at this stage, but there's a lot of dry powder and cash around. And I guess my, my question here, Ian, and it may be a bit unfair on you, but is angel and VC a good fit for med tech companies, especially when they're looking to kind of like try and grow the operation to do bigger trials and all this? And when would you say that people should come off the, uh, you know, the, the warm embrace of the NHR and transition <laughs> perhaps onto you know the solid meal that is, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, and that's a bit, and again, that's something that 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 comes up sometimes when we see um, uh, on the committee we see people who we describe as frequent flyers um, um, or, or these days they've been some of the, some people are being called grant junkies because we we know that they're getting money from lots of different sites I, and I and I I think it's it's probably a bit dependent on what your technology is and how long because some for some people so if you were developing something that was an implantable type device so it's going to be a class a higher class device like 2b or 3 uh mm. the chances are that's a much longer journey just in the just to develop the evidence that's going to get it to that stage um it's quite likely um you probably don't necessarily want to be giving away too much of your company to uh in, vcs and angel investors at that early stage because actually the value of your company is still quite small because there's such a huge amount of risk still and and mm. i and, and i think we so i think it's fair to say we understand that but we are also very cognizant of the fact that the reality is 
you know the the amount of money that's government funding is is to some degree lim- well it's quite significantly limited i mean it's there to catalyze stuff as much as anything the expectation is that eventually uh and, and preferably sooner perhaps rather than later that some there'll be some sort of private investment if it's worth doing then there'll be some private investment in there and and it, and, it, and it's something that we're doing a little bit more around certainly from the i4i team uh we're doing a little bit more of trying to help expose uh people that we funded uh to uh investors who are particularly focused around the medtech space to try and enable that to happen a bit more uh not not necessary to to actually pitch to them and in per se but to actually just expose what it is they're doing and and who they are and the fact that they're part of our program that i think it's a challenge in i i would say i know you say there's quite a lot of money out there i i think the reality for most of the people that we tend to deal with in in i for i is that is that most of them are saying uh actually most of the vc community is still very risk averse certainly in in this country compared to say the us uh and um and it's sometimes pretty difficult to raise funding from for many Mm. of those companies now I, i mean i've uh, and, and I and I think that's true, and it probably depends a lot on whether you're in a sort of sexy area of some sort doing something. So, for it, just as an instance, one of the one of our uh, one of the people we funded uh, just recently, actually, on one of our not the last, I think the last but one round of funding, he actually managed to get a raise in uh, on the basis he got he got about half of what he wanted on the basis of uh, we we've been shortlisted for I for I product development um get in now because you'll get a better deal um and, and he got more than half of what he wanted to raise for uh, as on the back of that now and we do know that uh certainly people who've been awarded uh you know i for i or whatever it so the investment community seem to value that if you're successful uh getting that kind of money and and that and i think that partly because of the perhaps the rigorousness of which we we evaluate and do the sort of due diligence process for them around some of uh, a lot of what that that's involved. But also I think because it de-risks for them, some of that investment. Um, and yeah. so there are other funders in the space. So obviously innovate UK is probably the other biggest funder of med tech uh, in its companies anyway. Um, and, and they've, they've tried this um, sort of what they call an innovation accelerator approach. They did it with a precision medicine call a while back. And I think we're going to start to see more of this where they, where you can, where you sort of do the, the grant plus investment as is the sort of package. So you get, so the investors get some uh, lower risk on the back, or, but they know that the quality of the of the grant has, of the project and so on has been looked at in detail. So those kind mm-hmm. of things are a bit more. And and actually, just uh, well, last week I think the life sciences vision came out. Uh, and you, if you've read government, if you're reading government documents which unfortunately some of those have to do if you're in the nihr um uh, and and actually just this morning the um, the new innovation strategies has been published um what you'll see is the government is looking at ways of trying to help pump prime and make available some of that sort of funding to support those kinds of things and also that sort of scale that next step which is the sort of scale up how do you get something adopted one of the challenges with um uh going to procurement is one of the questions you're going to be asked is, you know, can you, if, if this, you know, we want to do this across six different trusts, have you got, can you scale it quickly enough to meet this demand? And often that's a serious issue about 
uh, for, for small companies, uh, that growth stage can be quite critical. So that, again, mm. the government are trying to look at how to support that. And so there's, there's there are some new schemes in place or coming in place that are going to help to um, hopefully to help to bridge some of that gap. But uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a tricky question, uh, and and I we understand fully that for some people they're going to pro- probably have to go through or they want to go through some num- a number of different grants at different stages before they either are able to or in some cases before they really want to uh, because the risks are still very high start yeah. talking to serious in, uh, investors. And I guess just one kind of like small additional comment there is if you're in biotech or making some kind of drug, investors really get the schedules there. You go through phase one, two, three, and then when the FDA approves the drug, it's a statement on that drug working, you know, and then you can sell it and you IPO and, you know, the markets get it. I think with medtech, and I've certainly found this with many investors I've spoken to, they don't really get it. They don't get that it's a combination of therapeutic stuff and also diagnostic stuff, and the, the, the market dynamics are very different. And you just don't get a single medical device company going that big. They get bought by Medtronic, Johnson, Abbott, you know, these kind of companies. And they, they exit a lot earlier into something, one of these big conglomerates. And so that if you're doing series A, B, C, D, E, F, there isn't really the runway to kind of get return on investment with some of these. And I think that 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 story is not distilled into the the common consciousness of a lot of the early VC and, you know, Angel. I think it's getting there, but it it makes it quite difficult sell. And I think um, it's it's worth worthy of a lot more discussion that we could do justice here. So let's just um, move on as we're getting to time. So I think just the final general comment um, before I give you the last word is COVID has obviously been, you know, talked about to death but is there anything that the you want to see in the NHL or don't want to see and what have you you know what have you changed your belief around given this 18 months of interesting turbulence yeah I that's a good that's a very good question and and uh I know you can see when you ping me the questions a little bit earlier this morning I was looking and that's the one question I was thinking I'm not sure there's anything that I because I don't think there's anything I've changed my opinion on in terms of the, the industry. I think the industry is incredibly innovative. And I think we've, I think if anything, we've seen more of that, uh, the ability to very rapidly innovate, to, to repurpose in many cases, quite a number of, uh, of our um, awardees, um, we gave them the flexibility to completely change. So we had some people developing tests for something. They, they, they very rapidly realized they could do, uh, they could convert this to a, 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 a cough, covid-19 test uh, of some rapidly uh, and 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 they did they pivoted quite quickly and we allowed them to do that so so i think there's the, the innovation thing and i think ab- absolutely this industry is is fantastic uh, i think uh some of it uh what what i think I'd, we're going to see might depend a little bit how much of this the the advantages we've seen as a result of that will depend on a number of things and one of those will be what happens in the nhs uh, because uh, and how many of those things because they've also recognized some of these sort of innovativeness and how they do that and how they build that into try and make that business as usual which has been a, a big struggle that whole adoption piece which we talked about is has been a traditionally been really difficult how that's going to develop or how that can we can, can continue to see that rapid picking up of, of of new technology can that be normal uh and i think the, the jury is still out at this point but i think it'll be interesting to see as the NHS start to look at what they, their lessons they've learned and how they start to embed that into new new processes. 
um, w- will be interesting, and the whole new, the whole reorganisation of the of the NHS into integrated care systems and what that implies. And, and there's obviously it's going to create some confusion for where you have to go to to sell stuff to, for instance. But but um, there are also some of the stuff that's being built into that around innovation. I think is important. Um, the other thing that's worth saying for medtech people is that um, one of the lessons that so partly because of the other thing that's been happened that's happened in the last 15 16 months which was the b word um uh is 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 um that the mhra are being trying to again to build to take advantage of that the 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 cutting loose from the european side of things to some degree and and also um uh again learning the lessons from covid and what how they were able to do some stuff incredibly fast i think the reality is it when when everything comes at you you can't you can't do everything as, as fast as that but there will be some things they can do faster but there's a there's a process for drugs called uh, uh the innovative uh, well, it's ilap it's called for sure i can't even remember what the letters stand for now ilap there will be a process it's, it's a sort of designation and it, uh, you meet, meet some certain criteria on it and you and it helps to sort of get through the process much, much faster um for innovative uh new drugs and there will be a process we're told for medtech now it ha- it, that's going to be a little while before it turns up but it's worth keeping an eye on that because that again potentially for innovative technologies which is what we've been mostly talking about today um that i think will be quite important and, and also where ukca uh and and the, whatever that begins to look like i mean at the moment it's looking like uh what the old mdd uh an ivdd the directives uh and that's based on that but there will be some changes clearly coming uh and i mm. think uh it'll be interesting to see what they do and i suspect it's going to look quite like mdr and ivdr but hopefully without some of the disadvantages that's what they're telling us um so i think on uh mostly because a lot of those changes were the things that mhra wanted to see anyway i think just mm. the way that the european agency of implemented some of it has been rather uh cumbersome so i think hopefully we'll be a bit slicker than that so i so i think uh sort of come you know coming back to that 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 issue uh i think don't be too disappointed that things aren't going to be suddenly going at 10 times the speed because not you just can't do that when you've got everything happening um but i think in the innovative space i think we should see uh more things in place and the innovation strategy today will obviously be encouraging that the whole issue about how to get new stuff into the system um but mm. just the the caveat to that is um there's still going to you still need to have evidence you know ce mark yes uh but you need evidence uh so safe but you and you're never going to get away from that in the healthcare space um uh it is and it's just but it's a question of what level of evidence is going to be required um uh, in order to sell it, I think um, I I just like to see us put us, our best foot forward as a nation if we can. We've got nice <clears throat> at least formally, and you know it's, it's changed a bit in recent times, but it was the bar that everyone had to jump over for a lot of devices. We've got the MHRA, and we've got our, the opportunity to kind of write down our own, you know, you know standards. And I think if we could bring all that together, and especially that. You know, if, if the C, if a class two A device came with the evidence and the endorsement, it'd be a lot easier to sell. Um, and I think this moving away from just a safety only statement, I think would be a really nice change. So if anyone's um, high up at MHRA, 
nice, etc. listening, you know, please uh, pop to it. <laughs> it was yeah. all a favor, but it's never going to be quick, and it shouldn't be. Medicine shouldn't be a knee-jerk uh, reaction, I think. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. And I, and I think, but actually, and that does say to one, one of the things that we, again, questions that we'll all ask or is, have you talked to NICE? Have you talked to the MHRA? Because uh, and often people at the beginning of the journey will say, oh, no, not ready for that yet. But actually, you are ready if you as soon as you start thinking about it, because they can actually help you to again it's part of that understanding what the journey looks like making sure that you're actually traveling in the right direction and not going off in, a, in the completely the wrong way because the last thing you want to do with either of those bodies is to give them a load of information and they turn around and say this is this is not fit for purpose you need to make sure that you're generating the right evidence that, that is going to get you to CE mark or is going to get you uh in the right direction for for, for a nice appraisal or a whatever it is, a med tech, uh, uh, you know, briefing or something. So I, so I'm talking to, they're very happy to talk to you. So um, there are ways of getting, of, of talking to them through their, in, uh, in the case of NICE, their Office for Market Access, in the case of MHRA through their innovation uh, service, which you can find on the websites. So absolutely go and talk to them because uh, they can help you in, in thinking about the direction that you need to travel on what to, as you said alex at the beginning is, is is quite a long journey so try and if there are that's one of the ways of trying at least partially to um save yourself a bit of the pain uh by by taking detours when you shouldn't <laughs> which you might otherwise do yeah um okay then so um ian have you got any last um particular comments that you'd like to make more broadly around the program or anything you'd like to wrap up on uh, so I think it's, uh, just to say that the NIHR is, uh, very much, and certainly the i for i program is very much open to innovative, uh, med tech, uh, whether it's devices, diagnostics or digital, uh, technologies. Um, and we are more than happy to, um, to talk to you. There's a, there's a, an email address you can contact us on i4i at nihr.ac.uk, um, with a with an inquiry with a query if you want to be connected to some to a clinician if you need people to to try and help you uh who'd be interested in doing that we can help you with that process so contact us again do it early uh before well before you want to think about applying to us um and have a and if you need to have a chat with someone you can have a chat with someone like me or somebody else from from the team who can help you uh give you some indication about whether you're likely to be eligible for the funding you know whether what you're doing is fits the fits the call so you don't waste lots of time um the worst thing that happens to us and it still happens actually it's slightly frustrating is that we find when we competition closes um we look down the list of of, of applications that have come in and probably it's it, not quite as many as half now but there are still a significant number uh of people that have applied to us that we've never ever talked to and have never asked us a question um now i i we haven't done the analysis that says uh, if you talk to us uh, about it and check all that stuff out, that you're more you're more likely to be one of the successful candidates. We haven't done. We should do that analysis. We haven't done it, but I suspect we'll find that there's a higher there's a slightly higher chance of succeeding um, if you actually come and talk to us, um, even if it's just getting through that first that first step to get shortlisted. Great. Okay. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today and to kind of go through some questions. It's great to be the one asking those questions rather than having to write um, tens of thousands of words, um, responses and rebuttals. 
But uh, my name is Alex Mendes, and I'm the CEO and founder of Motilla, and I've been asking the questions today, and I'm very grateful to the NHL for their support. And if anyone's got any follow-up questions, feel free to contact me on LinkedIn, which will be in the links below. Thanks a lot.